You're listening to the Real Estate of Things podcast. Welcome to the Real Estate of Things podcast. I'm your host, Josh Craig, COO of Lima One Capital, and I'm your guest host, actually. So for all of you avid listeners out there looking for Dalton, don't turn me off just yet. We've got a great episode for you today, and don't worry, I'm just here for a guest uh, one-time spot. Dalton will be back next episode. So today, it's my distinct honor to share my guest podcast with one of the most respected and connected and, and genuinely great people in the entire investment banking and home building industry. Margaret Whalen, CEO of Whalen Advisory and Capital Markets. So welcome to the Real Estate of Things podcast, Margaret. Thank you, Josh. Good to see you today. Yeah. So fair warning, you are my first podcast guest. So lucky you, first of all. And then uh, I'm sure I'll stumble plenty, but Dalton's told me that as long as we don't curse or offend anyone or bring any lawsuits or or get his podcast shut down, then uh, we'll call to win. So we've got a low bar and uh, I'm sure we'll be able to overcome uh, all those objections. So we've known each other for, uh, I was reflecting coming in this morning, we've known each other for about six or seven years, but typically we only get a chance to catch up on stage at a panel or in a hallway at a conference. So I'm excited to get to spend a few minutes with you today chatting about this explosive home building industry and the craziest of times we're in. Just share some perspective for, for our listeners. And you know, when I was thinking about interesting guests to join me here, you immediately came to mind. You, know, you bring such a unique perspective from seeing all sides of the industry and in your work with growing home builders and large flippers and aggregators and how those operators interact with the capital markets and Wall Street. So just a really cool perspective. So first, let's help us set the stage a little deeper than that with some background on you and your company. So maybe you can just share a little bit about uh, about your company and, and your specific niche. Sure. Thank you, Josh. And, and thanks to Dalton and the team for including me as your first guest speaker on the podcast. So my background is that I have been an investment banker working on Wall Street, representing construction and real estate companies for my whole career now, which is nearly three decades. I had been at UBS for over 10 years, then at JP Morgan for about eight years. And in 2014, I started my own business, Wheel and Advisory Capital Markets. And the goal was to offer a higher level of service to a smaller group of clients. Because what happens when you work at the big investment banks is that you're more focused on volume versus actually success on behalf of the client. And I had a goal, really a a vision for the business was very different to anything that I was seeing because I like my clients so much and I love the business. And it's I appreciate that you use the word interesting to describe what I do because one of the things I screen for with my clients is if the business is interesting to me. So because of that, we split our time almost evenly in representing either construction companies or home builders. We only work on the sell side or the operator side. We don't work for buyers or investors. And then we also split our time almost evenly between raising capital versus representing a company that's ready to sell. Very interesting. So, and so you shared a little bit about the uh, about your 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 past lives, but I'm always interested to hear the story of pe- how people either got started in real estate, how they chose it, or how it chose them. So, what led you down the the path to get in initially? God, you know, it's something I haven't thought about for a long time. But when I started my career in 1994, I graduated from University College of Dublin in Ireland, and I was recruited by Merrill Lynch to come over and do essentially a training program, I guess, within the investment bank. And I worked for a team that was focused on oil and gas. And all of the senior executives on the team, the bankers and the analysts, had PhDs in geology, (laughs) which is something that I didn't have and I wasn't interested in. 
And then over the next couple of years, I moved into working on the home building and construction team, which was something that was super interesting to me. I think in part because as an immigrant to the U.S., the opportunity for homeownership was attractive to me and then being a part of the whole cycle of that. And the opportunities in the U.S., I think, for women and women in construction and finance are greater than they are in Europe as well. So all of that came together. And then there are several times over the course of my career where my industry choice was questioned, in particular going into Y2K. Josh, you're probably way too young to remember Y2K, but everyone decided that they, uh, you're probably in high school, everyone on Wall Street decided that they should go to Silicon Valley or go and work for a tech company and everything had to be tech related. And there were lots of home building executives of jumping ship, home building investment bankers, construction bankers jumping ship to go to California and, you know, make their fortunes on the tech side of the industry. And of course, none of it worked. Nothing has really evolved, unfortunately, in the housing and residential real estate world in terms of leveraging technology. So a lot of people then did what they call B2B, which is back to banking, or B2C, which is back to consulting. And I wrote it out. I stayed. I was at UBS at the time as an equity research analyst through Y2K and then through the early 2000s with Sarbanes-Oxlade. And a wall went up between investment banking and equity research. I had started my career in equity research, but there really was no wall. We were very deal-oriented. I worked for a team, an investment banking team that was very successful on the transaction side. And that was the part of the business that was most interesting to me. So as a wall went up between research and banking, I decided to jump from UBS to JP Morgan as a managing director, same Rolodex, same clients, but with a, sim- a slightly different job description. Interesting. Yeah. So we definitely have a lot of parallels. I am an immigrant as well. So I'm from Canada. I didn't, we worked in the, in the, you, know, you worked in the geo uh, oil space. I did not. Worked in biofuels a little bit, but a farming background. So we worked both, worked with on the land and uh, found our way to real estate. So it's always so interesting to hear. Very rarely does, do you, does anyone go through, you know, the early years thinking they're going to spend their world and their life in mortgage or in real estate, but uh, amazing how people always just tend to find themselves here and some really cool stories about how we all got to this place. So. Well, I love um, the business and the opportunities that it provides for stability within communities and for families, especially immigrant families you and I have created. And it's a simple enough industry, but because of the cyclicality, the seasonality, the leverage, the cycles, it keeps us all on our toes, right? Absolutely. Yeah. We know we talk about it all the time here about, you know, although, you know, it's to your point, it's really a simple industry, whether we're lending money or building houses, it's not that complicated, but we really lean into it as a noble purpose, right? We're providing housing stock for America. We're rehab, you know, rehabbing properties. We're restabilizing neighborhoods. So we really lean into that uh, as a company. And I think a lot of us do across the industry, which is why we get to meet so many interesting, interesting people and why we have, uh, you know, building some, some great companies along the way. So, I also love the background of Lima One, Josh, you know, being started by two Marines because it's so important to welcome veterans who go out and put everything at risk and put their careers on hold to welcome them back into the industry. So I love the background of your company, too. Yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah, we uh, I, I certainly leaned into it when I was uh, looking to join. We we talk about it all the time. Most of our conference rooms are, are named after whether some uh, some marine heritage. So it's uh, yeah something we're really really proud of and and hold uh, hold dear. So let's dive in. So we've got a really diverse listener base, Margaret. We're now a few months into this, and they and just like our client base ranges from small entry level investors and home builders doing a few transactions a year to large scaling home builders who build hundreds of homes per year. But regardless of place in the industry, 
you know, questions I get asked all the time kind of fall around three broad topics. One, just general markets perspective about where we are, about uh, looking to our crystal ball. Two, about the financing side of things, about what's changing, what do we need to know, how do they get more for less, tends to be the angle. And then three, you know, kind of segments of industry. Where is it heading? Building types, this, you know, buzzword of the decade, build for rent, this blurring of lines between builders and landlords and flippers and wholesalers. So let's, I think we'll have a good conversation kind of weaving those three general lines, broad topics, I should say, into some, some questions. So let's talk about the three big ones for sure. So I'm sure we've got way more than we have time for, but we'll see what we can get to and how to keep everyone on their toes. So, so let's talk about the, the broad market as a whole first. You being, you know, extremely dialed into all pockets of the country. I know you don't just focus, you're based on the East Coast, but you certainly have clients from coast to coast and you, you know, from builders to large flippers. You know, what is your kind of crystal ball tell you about where we are in the overall home building cycle? And I, I know, you know, depending on the talking head that you listen to, you know, we're somewhere in the two to four million homes per year short of demand. It looks like we need somewhere in the neighborhood of another 10 million homes in the next decade for rental properties. So on the surface, it appears that we have a really long runway ahead of us, that we have a lot of green pasture. But what are you seeing? What's your perspective of where we are in the overall cycle? Well, it's definitely a, a hot topic right now, isn't it? I was in New York last week. I spoke at two different conferences, the John Burns Annual Housing Outlook Conference and then Lincoln International. One of the boutique M&As invited me to speak about M&A and housing and construction. So in terms of the, the general market perspective, having been around this industry for 30 years, I'll tell you one thing for sure, which is that you only know the market peaked or troughed when you're looking in the rearview mirror, right? <laughs> There's a lot more space looking out in front of the windshield versus the rearview mirror. And I always try to focus on the future. But I believe that we are undersupplied. I believe there's a lot of demand. I believe there's pent-up demand for housing. I don't have a clue if it's 1 million or 2 million or 5 million. I really trust the research coming out of the John Burdens team. I've always felt that they were more independent, more analytical in, in how they approach that. And some of the trends that they referenced at their conference last week, for example, were the fact that even though we know mortgage rates are going to go up and that's definitely going to put a squeeze on affordability because monthly payments will spike even off a low basis, rates go up, that there's still very wealthy millennials in the market right now for housing, some of whom would be buying their first home, but it's not a typical first home purchase, meaning that it would be a smaller or less expensive home in the suburbs because a lot of these individuals have been able to save over the last couple of years. They haven't been going out as much. They haven't been traveling. They haven't been having big weddings. They're able to work from places that they wouldn't have worked from before because of the, the trend towards work from home, which seems to be permanent. And then also because a lot of uh, student housing or um, student loans have been forgiven. And so I think that you have a lot of affluent consumers coming into the market. There was definitely a slowdown in immigration because of COVID, but we just saw this week international borders are starting to open up again. And, and for folks like you and I who are educated overseas but came to the U.S. for opportunity, we know there's pent-up demand and those tend to be affluent, educated individuals coming into the housing market. So I feel like as far as we can see, there's very little inventory there's a lot of demand. There are natural supply constraints that we probably haven't experienced to this degree before, whether it's volatility and availability of construction materials, sticks and bricks, whether it's the aging and graying of the U.S. labor pool for construction, which is a whole topic on its own. 
but that is limiting supply. The second part of your question after my views on the general market was about financing. Financing, of course, is super attractive right now. And it's not just the fact that rates are so low and spreads are tightening and home values are going up and all of that is leading to really record advance rates on debt, whether it's equity or debt, but the availability of the capital is higher than it's ever been before. We've also seen the U.S. housing market emerge as a bright spot in the global economy over the last two years, and that has encouraged a lot of capital to come in from Asia. For example, we worked with a large builder in Texas over the last 18 months, uh, announced a transaction in July this year that they were acquired a half a billion dollar transaction by Daiwa House, one of the largest real estate companies in Japan, which has a significantly lower cost of capital than we do as, as a housing company publicly listed in Tokyo, but also as a borrower in Japan where rates are even lower than they are here in the U.S. So the financing is there. The advance rates are higher. That often can lead to risk in the market over consumption bubbles, but we're not seeing it as of yet. And then your third question was around built to rent. We'll get into build to rent. I think I think you just hit on a bunch of interesting topics. One, the affordability concern is real, right? I think not only if you know as as interest, as interest rates start to tick up, home price you know, appreciation can only go so much further north. You know, what is that going to mean? It's a really interesting topic that we could debate for a long time. The other, the, the point you just made about risk is something we talk about a lot as a lender. You know, when you see this insatiable demand for our loans for for volume, you see some lenders starting to make some questionable decisions. I think we saw this movie play out in you know 2005 six leading into seven and eight meltdown i don't think we're anywhere near that yet don't get me wrong i don't want to create any, any uh, crazy headlines but you see the same type of decisions being made about how do we differentiate ourselves and there's only so many things you can do so we feel that is a real risk to to the industry is lenders get uh, out of control and you know make some decisions they wouldn't otherwise make so but the thing about it is that even if the lenders go crazy and didn't learn from the last downturn, it doesn't matter because it's so hard to to finish a lot right now, to develop dirt, get it in title, get it through the process so you can build on it. And then you can't find sticks and bricks and you can't find labor. So there's a natural constraint on the supply side versus demand. Good point. Yeah. So, I mean, how do you see that imbalance shaking out? Like, what what is the next you know, 12, 24 months look like? Are we able to, I think you've seen from a starts and permits, uh, things are ticking up, have been trending the right direction for the last year or so. Do you see a, kind of a leveling out of, of starts or is still this kind of up and to the right as builders try to catch up from, from that uh, where they were left off for the last few years? I definitely think starts are a lead indicator, right, by about six months of demand. And I definitely think we're going to see starts continue to grow over the next couple of years. There's no reason to believe that we won't. Yep, I fully agree. On the on the who is starting those houses, you know, one of the stats I saw a couple of years ago, and I haven't seen it published since, is the who is building houses. And I think the last stat was somewhere in the neighborhood of 60 to 70% of all the homes built in the U.S. are built by, you know, quote unquote, a small home builder, someone who builds less than a couple hundred houses a year. Do you feel that being the same today or, or have you seen uh, a lot of M&A or a lot of these smaller builders kind of pushed out because of their inability to get a lot? First of all, they're not developers or you know whether they can't get supplies, they can't hedge out contracts and they can't scale up. What are you, like, what are you seeing today? Are, are, we, are small, these small guys still really prevalent or are they kind of pushed out? 
Yeah, it's a great question, Josh. So the thing about it is that of the million or so starts a year, so much of that is concentrated in the top 40 or 50 MSAs around the country, what we call the, the refer to as the smile markets. Within those markets, it's incredibly concentrated. Markets like Tampa, some of the four MSAs in Texas, where you could have 60, 70% of home starts represented by the top eight or 10 builders in the market, major concentration. So then the barrier to entry is very high for smaller private builders, which is pushing them into maybe C or D locations or different types of product to try to differentiate themselves. But that is a trend. I mean, I remember when I started my career in the early 90s in this industry, the top 10 builders had about 10% market share overall, and today it's 40. So, well, I imagine that it's going to mature at, at some point, you know, because they're just, they're markets, concentrated markets where demand is great and where there's a real benefit to being a high production builder. And that's where the builders tend to focus their efforts versus parts of the country like the Mid-Atlantic or uh, the Midwest or even California right now where you have negative demographics, you actually have more people leaving than migrating into those cities. Yep. No, it's it's right. And I know you work with a lot of scaling builders as they're looking to you know, uh, raise equity or, or kind of grow up the capital stack. Are you seeing a lot of these smaller builders because of the scarcity of lots, are they branching out to also become you know an infill, fixed and flip uh, builder? Are they also becoming a land developer? Are you seeing diversity of, of business models now starting to become more of the norm? Well, that, that's what you're hoping for, right? So we can find a deal to work on together. So going back to what you and I were talking about a little while ago in terms of interesting business models, one client we had in California about five years ago, Thomas James Holmes, which was an infill builder, teardown builder, scraper. There's different ways of describing what they do. But I, I remember explaining to an investor, because we were representing Tommy and Jim on selling the company, that these this business was the biggest home builder no one had ever heard of, right? They had half a billion dollars in annual revenue, but they were only selling about 100 homes a year because the price point was higher. So the business model was where they started was to go into West LA and buy a 50 plus year old home for a million or so dollars and within 14 months sell a brand new home on the same lot for three to five million. Now they're doing that up and down the coast and over into the Rockies and Phoenix. We have clients doing the exact same thing on the East Coast as well. I think it's a fantastic business model. In particular, California has relaxed some of the rules around zoning right now to the point that you can replace one single family lot with two new homes because of the affordability constraints. Some buyers or owners of dirt are doing that with townhomes. Some are doing it with a traditional single family home and then what we call an ADU, an accessory dwelling unit on the same parcel. But I do think those business models are very interesting, and it's really the blue ocean theory, you know, where the strategy is that you go where others are not, that the the strategy of the blue ocean is go where there's less competition. And we're definitely seeing some smart, thoughtful, young executives come into the industry with strategies like that. No, we love those customers as well. We think it's a great strategy, albeit difficult to scale, which is why there's a ability to, why it is a bit of a blue ocean still, right? How do you recreate that highly repeatable, you know, scalable company, which is the the challenge. But for those who can figure it out and manage it like it is, well, all in one development and have highly repeatable, great teams that can go and repeat the same process over and over, it's a great model. What about on the lot development side of things? Are you seeing you know, more builders become both a developer builder or is still you know, buying finished lots? Is that a thing of the past or are we still able to actually get some or are the nationals just grabbing everything that's, uh, that's out there and available? 
Well, the, the control in this industry definitely sits with the owners of the dirt, right? And so you have lots of different financing available around dirt. You have to take entitlement risk, which is significant in some parts of the country, like the coast, but much less so in parts of the country like uh, Texas and the southeast, where zoning officials are a lot more commercial and flexible. And then you have to get the dirt developed, which means actually moving land, putting in the infrastructure to get to the point where you have finished lots. But I would say on the home builder side, coming out of the GFC, the downturn last cycle, is that many of them benefited significantly coming out of the GFC versus coming out of the SNL crisis in the early 90s, because instead of owning 100% of their dirt, half of it was optioned. And you're still seeing that. In fact, it's been a very challenging market to call for the last few years. I remember in June of 2018 when rates jumped up and home sales slowed really sharply. And because of that, a lot of the builders slammed the brakes on buying dirt. They were controlling more dirt uh, off balance sheet via land banking. Land banking is very popular right now, kind of cycles a little bit, but it's very much in vogue right now. So we're definitely seeing the trend towards off balance sheet seller financing of dirt. But that I don't believe that's the reason that the availability of finished lots is slowed down. I think it's more just the bottleneck relative to demand. Yep. I like your comment. He who owns the, owns the dirt controls the market. That's definitely accurate. So you, you started t- taking me down. Next train of thought was, uh, was on the capital side of things and how builders are financing themselves these days. So that capital stack, whether it's, you know, what kind of trends are you seeing in, in terms of debt or equity or land banking or MES financing? Like what, what, uh, how are these guys evolving with the times and, and finding the capital to help them scale? Debt or equity or dequity, as I call MES. So it really depends on the size of the builder. We have over 20 publicly traded home builders today, including a couple of new ones. Dreamfinders went public via traditional IPO. Lancy went public in the last year via SPAC. And then we have some private builders that have publicly traded debt, like Madame or Ashton Woods, David Weekly. And then what we find is where we add a lot of value for clients, private builders that are outgrowing friends and family money, they're pivoting, their growth is accelerating, they're not turning the capital as fast as they need to. And so they will approach us and say, we need growth capital. And then we sit and help them think through what their three to five year model might look like, what the peak capital need might be, how much leverage they're comfortable with relative to the peak capital needs, so how much is going to be debt, how much is going to be equity, and then grow it out from there. And I would say that the sources of capital are changing a little bit. As I mentioned earlier, the Japanese buyers coming in, which is a very attractive valuation up front, selling to a strategic with long-term capital. The Japanese are known for not changing anything, not changing the management teams, not changing the business plan, not not uh, reducing the workforce, which is very important to a lot of these legacy builders that are have uh, that have built up a culture and a community within their company. And so I would say the available, the only big thing that's changed is the Japanese coming in buying outright, which provides growth capital. We represented a company called Truemark, one of the larger private builders in uh, California a couple of years ago on their sale to a Japanese buyer. And that was because they wanted to accelerate their growth. They needed a long-term capital. And then separately, land banking. We actually worked for two different teams over the last year, Satanta Development Company and Land Strategies Management, to introduce them to providers of debt that they would then use to lend to the home builders in a land banking format. 
Got it. Interesting. Yeah, no, it's you know something we get asked about all the time or you know, are we willing to stretch outside of we're normally just a you know first lien mortgage, senior debt, but we get asked all the time for some creative things and whether it's others are out there doing it or uh, not at scale yet. So it's not widely known or, or builders are just starting to get creative and uh, on their on their spreadsheets with uh, how they could help themselves grow. And it's a real it's a real need, right? The, the, the small local community banks that play such a critical role have only you know so much runway to go. So you're seeing more and more private lenders enter more and more capital markets. It's Wall Street money trying to get really attracted to the space and, and wants us to grow volume and, and, and get, create some unique ways of doing it. So I think you'll see a lot of innovation over the years ahead of not just, you know, you, you, like you said, uh, it's not just debt, it's not just equity, it's this debt equity. I like that term. So I think you're, you're going to notice some more creative things coming to, to bear. So let's talk about some of the current trends in, in the market. One of the, the, the buzzword, build for rent. You've seen certainly volume pick up. You've seen a ton of institutional capital come into the space. What are your general thoughts, your personal opinions on on that build for rent market? Is it here to stay? Oh, yeah, very much so. I mean, it, it's fascinating to me, build to rent, because it's really an extension of SFR, single family rental. And if you take a step back, Josh, and you, you know the history here, but coming out of the GFC, Warren Buffett was on CNBC and said, if there's one thing I could do today from an investment perspective, it'd be to go buy 100,000 single family homes and hold on to them or rent them out. Right. And he's known for running in when others are running out and everyone was running out of housing at the time. And through that conversation, that really an, an industry and then an asset class was formed with single family rental. And traditionally, that had been buying scattered lot, older homes, one at a time, initially on the court steps and then in scale. It's still an industry, though, where I think you have 300 million Americans living in 100 million households and 14 million of those are single, 13, 14 million are single family rental homes, but only something like four or five percent are actually owned by aggregators or institutions. The rest are owned by mom and pops, very, very small scale and scattered. So what happened, and I guess it was two or three years ago, we saw Bill Torrent start to percolate. And the reason is that the SFR REITs that were now publicly traded companies with tens of thousands of homes are really having a hard time growing. And when you're a big public company, you need to be able to show Wall Street that you can facilitate that growth with access to their capital. And so because of the nature of the REIT structure, they had to take down assets that were cash flowing. So they were negotiating with land sellers, land developers, local builders, regional builders, and in some case public builders to take down homes at CO, Certificate of Occupancy. So they would might have a little bit of lease up risk, but they would take down these new homes. And the biggest challenge that the SFR REITs like AMH Invitation Homes have had as public companies is trying to guesstimate what the maintenance turnover is going to be month to month on those properties. That's one thing Wall Street discounts the stocks for. And so to the degree that they could pivot from older scattered lot homes to brand new deliberately specced homes where you can get up to a 20% premium on rents versus an older home and have stickier tenants, then that was going to be super attractive. And what we've seen with Bill Rent is this incredibly wide range of product from very high dense 14, 16 per acre, what I would call horizontal apartments to very traditional single family, three or four per acre with a single plat or single lot. And there's demand for all of that. In my mind, I think that demand is on the margin taking tenants from multifamily versus single family. Actually, I think it's going to add to home ownership, but with a delay, because it allows families, if you think about it, families are individuals who could always 
rent a new car, could never rent a new home. Now these homes are brand new. They're deliberately uh, spec. They are professionally managed. And that's super attractive to folks that are on the move. People are moving more than they ever have before in the wake of both the pandemic and the social unrest and protests from last year. So I think that Built to rent is definitely here to stay. I think it's displacing multifamily more than single family. That's the reason multifamily operators are coming into it. We have student housing companies, multifamily companies from all over the world calling us saying they want to do built to rent. And it's because they're feeling like the opportunity is going to be bigger and keep growing from here. Yeah. No, I see the world very similarly. I think your horizontal apartment theory is right. It it starts to look and feel much more like multifamily. It's almost like the the pendulum swung all the way out to your point of you know three or four houses per acre. It really looks and feels like single family. It has a backyard. Now it's swinging back to somewhere closer to multifamily where it's 8, 10, 12, 15 units, townhouses. It's really just a squished down apartment. It loses some of that appeal of, of what a true single family is. So I think that we're still trying to figure out how the, the story is going to play out. But to your point about but you can still park your car. You can still have a dog, which you may not have been able to have in multifamily. You can make a two or three year commitment and then decide what's right for your family. So I think whether or not it's high density, it's still super attractive. No, no disagreement whatsoever. It's, uh, I think it's here to stay and, and here to grow. So we're we're we're, for, we're definitely all in on it here. So what about builders that are becoming also landlords? We work with a lot of builders who are, are aging. Who it's been a family business for 20, 30 years. They're starting to think about their exit plan. Maybe part of it's to sell, part of it's to hand it over to their legacy families. But some of them are becoming landlords as well. How are you? Are you seeing? Are you seeing a lot of that? I mean, I, you know, we have a uh, our you know we'll do a you know billion and a half work with a few clients a year, a few thousand clients a year. You're you have a lot of touch across the nation. Are you seeing more and more builders also become landlords and think about that generational plan? It's definitely a great opportunity for a builder that can afford to hold on to the house for longer. With the availability of financing, you can get a lot of equity out, so it doesn't take up as much capital as it would have in the past. But I'll tell you something, Josh, my private builder clients have always held on to a lot of houses that they built, right? Often they'll give give discounts to their staff, to their families to buy the homes and rent them out. They do it as an investment opportunity, but they also do it for intelligence information because if you have a busy homeowners association, and you want to anticipate what might be around the corner. If there's a problem coming, it's great to have a a property, a house in that community, right? So my builder clients have always owned a lot. I do believe, I do agree with you that they're doing more now. They're doing it at a greater scale, but I don't think it's as new as it used to be. And we're not seeing from a, you know, a generational wealth management perspective, we're not seeing that as much of a shift maybe as others are with our clients. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. Good perspective. What about modular construction? How does this fit into the the grand scheme, whether it's to reduce waste, become more efficient, to build faster? What do you I know you've been a proponent of it for a long time, I think. What are you seeing there? Thoughts on how that uh, how that evolves? Well, I mean, if we take a step back, the opportunity for change and uh, digitization of housing, residential construction in the U.S. is absolutely endless. It's there's so much of it. Think about the home that you live in today, Josh, uh, versus the iPhone you use or the car you drive. 
the uh, the functionality of the car and the phone has increased dramatically in the last couple of decades. <laughs> the house is pretty much the same, right? And the construction process in terms of if you look at how cars are built today with robots versus how they were built in the past, phones and everything else, the construction process for homes is the same way today in the U.S. as it was when Noah was building his ark. When the McKinsey Institute came out with their report about five years ago called The Path to Productivity, in residential real estate, they put U.S. housing at the bottom of the fourth quartile for productivity behind farming and agriculture. Right? That's pretty embarrassing as an industry. There's so much opportunity to improve that. I'll tell you at a social level, there's so much focus on ESG right now. It's incredibly disappointing to me that every time I go out to tour with a client and I love I love the business, I love getting out on the job sites, I love the, the smell of the lumber and the sawdust, but you go out to a job site and there's a big dumpster in front of every house. And the National Framing Council has estimated that a third of the materials, the sticks and bricks that are purchased in a house for each house end up in the dumpster, right? And and sticks and bricks are half the cost of building a home. And the consumer ultimately is paying for that. So it's a substantial opportunity to improve efficiency and reduce waste that I think more sophisticated consumers or more ESG friendly consumers are going to start demanding or rewarding builders that offer that to them, that offer ZNE, zero net energy, ready homes or zero net, zero net energy homes, lower her scores. I think all of that is going to be a focus and a differentiator for some of the builders. Maritage, for example, one of the big publics does a great job of that already, but others like uh, Pulte are trying to catch up. So the process needs to improve. When you, when you say modular, that word has uh, different meanings to different people in the industry and, and in, in fact around the, the world as well. But in my mind, if you were to get a real disruptor in our industry, it would be somebody that has a model similar to an Amazon or an Uber or Netflix or Airbnb where they go direct to the consumer. So if you had a Tesla of housing, if you had a magnificent good, better, best product that the consumer could order direct online, skip through all the traditional sales process and have delivered to their home a couple of months later, or even a couple of weeks, a couple of days later, I think that would be a huge disruptor to housing on a local and a regional basis. Clayton Homes is doing it to some degree. You know, Clayton has historically been a modular company, will be a home manufacturer that uh, has bought several stick builders in the last few years, last decade or so. I do think uh, I've spent a lot of time in Japan over the last uh, couple of decades in my career when I was at UBS, I was global head of housing. So I would go over to Asia a lot. And the way they build homes is significantly more efficient than the way we build them here and safer too, by the way. And so I think that, I think there's so much room for improvement. I don't really don't know what the catalyst is going to be. It's frustrating to me that it hasn't started already. Unfortunately, we had some really spectacular blowups recently, like Katera, for example. You know, I mean, it's one thing to fail in in a uh, in an industry that changes dramatically that you know right the, the business slows the tide goes out and it really magnifies the risk but this is an industry where there's so much growth available so to fail at that level to write off so much capital uh, in a growing industry really underscored how they had no idea what the heck they were doing unfortunately uh, which is not to say that other folks won't be more successful at it i i do believe that they will we represented a company called commodore Corpor corporation earlier this 
this year, a manufacturer of modular homes out of the Midwest. They've got six factories. We represented them under sale to Cavco, which was one of the larger publicly traded companies. And Cavco and Skyline Champion, their peers are doing a really good job of bringing more affordable product to the market. These ADUs we talked about earlier, especially for the West Coast, where the zoning density is improving. So I hope that there's going to be a disruptor. I'd love to see Valor Equity or one of these guys, the original investors in, in Tesla, come into housing. Yeah, no, that that would be very interesting. Your point is not wrong at all, right? We're so archaic in how we how we build houses today still. It's uh it's ripe for disruption, but what that catalyst will be, it's almost the the iPhone Steve Jobs approach. You know, they they didn't no one knew they needed an iPhone until they had one, right? Until you could never live without one. So that's uh you know, there's still such a bad stigma around it for some reason. Uh, if you, you know, someone mentions that they live in a modular house, it's like, oh, this taboo thing of how how dare you so we got to get rid of that and uh and figure out what's going to be the the driver to look built built to rent like rental homes were considered taboo until people realize it's actually very smart to park your family for a couple of years make sure you like the neighborhood and the community and the school before you make a big investment yeah i love your idea someone uh someone needs to call musk and get him in here to uh to disrupt the industry and see where that takes us so well i'll leave that to you to, to make that call I was talking to the Wall Street Journal a couple of weeks ago because they're writing an article about Icon out of Austin, Texas, which is one of these 3D printing housing companies. And they had paired up with Lennar to build 100 houses in a community, which is fascinating to me. I think it's going to be very interesting to see how that plays out. I've been around the 3D printing for housing for years now. A lot of those companies were born in Chattanooga, Tennessee. So I've been out to see them several times. And I do have a real passion for this as, as a you know professional in the industry and a parent of four young children. I'd really love to see our industry focus more on waste management. Yeah, it's smart. What, so on the uh, last question about general trends, you mentioned 3D printing, steel construction, anything you're noticing there kind of taking off as maybe a next thing to watch or for people to get interested in and, and help think about differentiating other, other business models? Well, air quality is pretty important <laughs> over the last two years with COVID, right? That's definitely significantly increased in terms of consumers being focused on the quality of their air and their homes and wellness overall. I think they want connected homes, whatever that means, you know, in terms of being able to turn off your AC, um, on or off your AC, your heat, your open your garage door your nest security, all of that coming as a package. On the margin, most of the builders are excited if they offer an ice machine and the new refrigerator, you know, but I think it's because the technology is evolving so quickly and they don't want to commit to something that may be obsolete by the time the community is finished. But I do think the consumer is focused on wellness, focused on um, integrated homes. You know, before the the pandemic and the protests in early 2020, you had a lot of trends with homes being destroyed by natural disasters like flooding, seismic issues on the West Coast, fires on the West Coast, and a lot of homes been destroyed because of that, which is why steel and some of these more durable products are, are more popular in the manufacturing process right now. Okay. Well, you know, it's always good to leave the audience with some nuggets. Uh, I think you've given plenty, but maybe some advice. As you think about our general population of, of listeners, we, you know, we've got diverse array, but a lot of scaling investors, whether it's fix and flip, infill like Thomas James you mentioned, or builders out there trying to get to some, to some scale to attract large institutional capital infusions or plan their exit. What kind of advice do you want to leave them? Things to do, not to do, how to best position themselves, any general put you on the spot any kind of nuggets of advice come to come to mind 
Well, one thing I've noticed about uh, companies that are successful versus not, and I remember having this conversation with the uh, the management of Katera a couple of years ago, and they didn't really listen to me. But we have we all have to focus, right? You can't boil the ocean. Don't try to be all things to all people. Just pick one or two strategies, one or two markets, and get it right, and then build on that. Versus trying to do too much too quickly, superficially, and then having to retract. So I think focus is a big one. I think one of the pieces of advice I give to operators and and our private builder, private construction companies, clients, is to spend as much as you can on a great controller or CFO. A professional is incredibly important in that role to really understand what your peak capital need is going to be and not to run out of money. Because that has happened so many times with so many companies in our industry. They get hit by a cycle. They underestimate how much leverage they have or what their covenants are going to be or how much cash they needed. And they just they burn out and they blow up, unfortunately. So a great finance controller. I also recommend investing in an independent auditor as early as the company can afford. The reason is because there are a lot of great auditing firms, not just the bigger, well-known firms, but even smaller regional firms that can really help you think through best practices as a builder or construction company that can help you think about what your EBITDA is, what should be in there, what should not be in there, because that is the data point that most buyers or investors are going to focus on more than anything else. I'm sure from your perspective as a lender, Josh, having audited financials is going to give you more security and the investment opportunity with that client and probably give them more leverage. So I guess those would be focus, great uh, finance acumen and independent auditor. They'd be my three tips. Great tips. Yeah, as a lender, I certainly appreciate all of those. And if the, the the seats returned, I think I'd probably say most of the same. I think focus is really critical to my some of my questions. You can see where, where my, my head was at, thinking about a lot of builders are diversifying and becoming more than other, maybe getting over their skis a little bit in terms of whether it's just speed of growth, whether it's diversity of business model. And we see you know people getting getting out of their wheelhouse, and it, and it shows. But yeah, people come with a button up business plan, and financials is uh, would speak volumes to how how seriously you take your business. And, and how seriously we should take you and, and help you. So, well, Margaret, I think uh, we could probably go on for a few hours, but we've accomplished our, our mission, I hope. We don't think we offended anyone. I don't think we'll get the podcast shut down. So we'll, we'll leave it in good hands for Dalton to pick up next time. And I really appreciate you taking the time to share some insights with us. And I look forward to seeing you on the conference circuit again here soon. Yeah, likewise. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Good to see you, Josh. Great. Well, thanks for listening, everyone. And we'll, uh, we'll see everybody soon. Take care. Are you a real estate investor looking for the right lender that can finance all your deals and help you scale? Lima One Capital has the best suite of loan products in the industry bar none. Whether that's fix and flips, fix and holds, building new construction, or buying rental properties, they have incredible financing solutions for it all. A reliable common sense lender is one of the most important parts of your investment team. And that's exactly what you get with Lima One. Let Lima One Capital show you how they've helped thousands of real estate investors scale and increase their wealth. Check out LimaOne.com or call 800-259-0595 to speak with a consultant in preparation for your next project. Thank you for joining us today on the Real Estate of Things podcast. Subscribe and tune in weekly for new content from the industry's best while we continue to unpack the nuances of this dynamic market. Follow us across social media for additional insights and analysis on the topics covered in each episode. And remember to rate, review, and share the show.